0: This morning, I want you to imagine something with me, okay? I want you to imagine uh, that you land a a promising job in a mid-sized company, okay? Some of you who are retired kind of recoil at the thought of that, but anyway. Um, (laughs) Pretend you really want it, okay? So you landed a job with this company, the benefits are good, the the pay is above average, there seems to be some kind of... uh, upward mobility and all the things that you were looking for. And so for the next 10 years, you work and you see a few good bonuses and you see a few lean years and you get a few promotions and more responsibility and some of that you want, some of that you don't. Uh, But over those 10 years, you find that the company is a bit uh, tight lipped when it comes to the public. There aren't really other opportunities to visit other branches or to actually meet many of the clients, and that always kind of seems strange to you. But there's rumors that the CEO is kind of a paranoid guy or something, and, and the whole outfit doesn't want government agencies snooping around or something, and you just buy it and keep going. You keep your head down, you keep feeding your family, and life is good. But then a coworker seems to go off the rails. And he sends out a memo about how he has some suspicions that the company might be guilty of illegal activity, and how he came across some information that really wasn't meant for his eyes. And you know the story. Within a few days, he's fired and gone. And the weird part of it is, is he was a pretty level-headed guy. He, he, you worked with him on a few projects, and he seemed like a uh, an even keel kind of guy. A few weeks later, a few of you, a uh, few of your coworkers, get an email from this person saying quote things aren't as they appear you don't know who you're working for and get out before things get much worse so you take that you print it off you show it to your boss and your boss is super busy like every boss is and so he kind of ignores it and you go back to your day-to-day life Then a few months later the fbi raids your office first thing in the morning And files are taken and computer hard drives are piled up and cell phones are collected and you're just kind of watching in shock as these corporate officers are hauled off in handcuffs. Your company was a shell company that transferred materials on the black market. You come to find out. So generic product names were actually contraband of some kind of sort and now your stock options are a big fat zero. And all those thousands of hours of work were spent on things that actually harmed society and didn't help it. And now, that seemingly random email from your cracked coworker was, in fact, a way out. He was actually the voice of reason. He was the voice of deliverance. He saw things right side up when everything else was upside down. And your worst suspicions were Confirmed, And so now you face months of pointless interrogations where they suspect you, you're guilty by association, and all because you hadn't taken the time to listen to that ludicrous co-worker who shot off that email. Today is Easter. I know you know that. Um, but what makes today special is this ludicrous news that the God who created the universe accomplished something so astonishing and so life-altering it just sounds at first Hearing to be ridiculous. At first, the news sounds a bit like the email from that cracked co-worker who says that everything isn't is as it appears. And so what is this life-changing news? It's simply this, that God has conquered corruption and death by sending his perfect son into the world to die as a sacrifice for his people's disobedience. And then three days later, That same God-man physically rose from the dead, confirming his claims. This resurrection demonstrates the fact that the world is in fact operating upside down. And that we are born slaves, and that death is abnormal. Many here don't find um, the resurrection of Jesus all that compelling. Uh, And maybe some haven't made the connection between the resurrection and our freedom. But this resurrection frees us. And being freed from something assumes that you were in bondage before. That's kind of the big underlying assumption. And that just seems kind of bogus to you. If you've never heard the gospel or if you don't know who Christ is, it's like you're living in the freest society that the world has ever known. You can worship as you want. You can do pretty much what you want. You're not forced to do much. You've got to drive the speed limit. You've got to pay your taxes. But other than that, You're pretty free. But you aren't free from worshiping. You aren't free from that. You aren't free from forming an ultimate allegiance to something. David Foster Wallace shares this insight when he says this. He says, In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. None of us are free from worshiping. We all make this ultimate alliance. Everyone has a master, is how we'll say that this morning, a purpose. And these alliances we form, this massive ultimate alliance that we choose, has implications down the road that Jesus calls our eternal destiny. And so not only does everyone have a master, but our service of these masters leads to a certain place. And you may not view it as that big of a deal, what we worship. You just got your head down working away at life's desk, not realizing that you are in fact working for a shell company of something that's far more insidious than you realize. Have you ever suspected that? Kind of like this employee you kind of saw a couple things that were off. Have you ever suspected that there's way more going on in life than what it appears? That you have longings that absolutely have no home on planet Earth. What reason would we have to, to desire to live forever when everybody dies? We're surrounded by death. Why do we desire to, to follow a certain kind of morality, even though in the end it ends up costing a lot? Why is that hardwired into us? Do you sense that that you can't be the person you want to be? That if you were push, game to shove and you really admitted it, there is a limitation there that you you are in a form of bondage and you're not quite sure what that is. There's hints of this shell company everywhere. And the news of Christ's resurrection whispers, things aren't as they appear. You don't know who you're working for and get out before things get worse. It whispers of a plan, of, a, of an exit, of a rescue way that God has made, a hope of living right side up before that final day. Jesus has lived right side up. And he is our great forerunner. He is the one who's gone before us. And so we're going to see what is this way that he has laid for us? What is this option of real lasting hope that we have in the gospel? We're going to be in Romans chapter 6 this morning. Romans chapter 6. If you didn't bring a Bible, that's okay. There's some in the lobby you can grab or steal from us. Romans chapter 6, I'm going to read verses 15 through 23. Why don't we stand if you're physically able to do so in reverence for God's word. And I'm going to read some words of the Apostle Paul written to the church in Rome. Romans 6 verses 15 through 23. I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version. Here's what it says. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? But now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You can be seated. Three steps here this morning in our outline. Um, One, we've got to ask, what is this question that Paul is asking about? Or what, what is he talking about when he starts off with this question? That's number one. Number two, we'll see that everyone serves a master. Everyone serves a master. And three, every master has a destiny. Or every master pays a wage, you could say. So Paul starts off in verse 15 with this question. He says, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? And he starts with this hypothetical and his answer is, "Of, of, of course not. He knows that in advance. But here's this question. Is rebelling against God okay because we're under God's grace, not God's law? Now the question is, what does it mean to be under God's grace instead of being under God's law? This is kind of the middle of a letter, so we have to know what he means by that. He's got something in mind. And so he's been arguing for for a way to get right with God that is kind of uncommon or out of the ordinary. It's a way called grace. You know, we think that getting right with God is kind of like an interview where you you go and you present credentials and you emphasize the positives and minimize the negatives. Maybe you have a reference, like, I know so-and-so, right? That's kind of how we think this whole thing works with God, and it doesn't. You could say that approach is what, he, what is meant by uh, being under the law, trying to impress, trying to obey, trying to earn. And in God, ironically, gives us a law to show that that approach is actually impossible and doesn't work. That's the whole point, but we just can't help ourselves. We love to try that as human beings. If you think about it, the way that a criminal is declared innocent is not by distracting the judge and jury by all the good things that they've ever done in their life, right? Imagine how absurd that would look in a courtroom. The crime in charge are specific. They are the central issue. They're the the, the crux of the matter. And if the person can show that they're in fact innocent or point to an alibi or anything else to that central issue, then they will be released, well Paul says earlier that all people that Jews and Gentiles and Californians and Haitians and everyone is guilty and incapable of earning this right standing with God through trying. He says earlier in chapter 3 verse 10 none is righteous no not one no one understands no one seeks for God. He makes it really clear that to be under the law is to be under the judgment of God's law and that only says guilty. But Paul says there's this alternative way, this way of grace that he's been explaining in his letter. That God has planned this way by sending a second Adam. The first Adam was the guy in the garden who blew it, who ruined things for everybody. And the second Adam is Jesus Christ who came and decided to take on our guilty sentences and to pay for them on the cross. And we know that these guilty sentences are paid and pardoned because the body of Jesus went missing three days later. And he rose, and all of his enemies searched, and they tried to spin the story, and they tried to do all of this stuff. And yet, the church was born because he rose from the dead. And so this new way of grace that Paul's been talking about is not accomplished by doing, but by attaching. Attaching yourself via trust to this man Jesus, to his life and to his death to his resurrection. And what what happens to Jesus then happens to us. He dies, and so we die too, is what he's been saying in Romans chapter 6. Our old selves die, our sinful selves die. And since he was victorious over sin, it's actually our expectation that we'll be victorious as well. That's the way of grace, to be right with God by attachment, not by performance or achievement. And it's through this attachment that we have been changed, we are changing, and we will be changed in the future. Now, earlier Paul asked a question in verse 1 of chapter 6. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? There he's asking, does being under grace mean that we can sin? Uh, Or can we get more grace by sinning more? And here it's kind of a similar question, but a little bit different. He's saying, does being under grace mean that we can we can sin. Does this way of grace allow us to be lax since we're saved by attachment? It's kind of like the kid at school, the, the small kid who's picked on all the time, but he makes friends with like the biggest kid in the school and walks around with him all the time. And all of a sudden, over time, you see this, this guy who was scared before get a little more cocky and get a little more, you know, oomph in because he's attached to the bigger guy, right? And so now... Paul's asking, does God's willingness to attach to us mean that we can kind of take advantage of the situation, if you will, and act like sin is okay? But Paul, he's insisted over and over again in this letter that that's not the case. He does say you're not a slave of sin anymore. He says that five different times if you want to search for him in chapter 6. You're not a slave. You're not under its rule anymore. And so what's the temptation for the person who keeps hearing, you're not a slave anymore, you're not a slave anymore. Like, oh, I'll just go do whatever I want, right? So Paul is throwing out that question. He's going to he's give us a good answer. So that's what he means by being under grace. It's having this right standing with God by attachment. Now, let's get into the second point, which is that everyone has a master. Everyone has a master. You know, Paul, I'm so glad for Paul in verse 19, He says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. And I just, I like verses like that. As a guy who's kind of slow sometimes, like, give me an illustration, picture, draw it for me, you know? And so he does. He uses an image that would have been very familiar in their day and a little less so in ours. And that's the image of a slave and a master, slave and a master. He says that everyone has a master. Everyone obeys someone or something. One author says, the master we obey shows whose slaves we are. And that's what Paul is saying. You know, we think that our choice is between being free or being a slave. And Paul is saying that's not actually your choice. Your choice is which master are you going to serve? That's what he's assuming. Now you might kind of recoil at that that idea. What? Like, are you kidding me? I'm not a slave to anybody. But again, is that entirely true? Do you find yourself being under compulsion to do things that your conscience doesn't want you to do? Are you able to be the person that you desire to be? Are you really free? And if, not, if you're not free, then what's keeping you from becoming the person you want to be? Don't you find life disappointing sometimes where you just kind of feel like the punching bag, you know, instead of the one punching? Do you have a concern over what other people think and are you do you think about how to impress other people? And maybe when you really press that issue and you think about, Am I a slave or am I not? you might find that the rhythms of your heart and the patterns of your mind are more like those of a slave than a free person. Think about that. We might not be, you know, subject to an earthly master that we see, but we are obeying something and we we are obeying someone, even if it's our own pride, even if it's ourselves. And Paul says, No, 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 it's not the choice is not between freedom and slavery. The choice is between who you're going to serve. And he actually really narrows it down from there, even. Because he says, Do you not know in verse 16 that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? Do you want to know who you're a slave to? Look at who you're most concerned about. Look at who you trust. Look at who you go to when you're anxious or what you do when you're pressed either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness so he kind of narrows it down he whittles it down and we might think that we're serving ourselves or we're serving a cause or we're but all those shell companies that we serve that are not Christ are all attached and he calls it the slavery of sin And in case you think Paul's like the harsh guy and Jesus is like the nice guy, Jesus says in John 8, 34, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave of sin. So Paul and Jesus are in agreement. They're saying everybody serves someone and he narrows it down just to these two. And in this day and in our time, obviously we know that if you're a slave that you can't serve two masters, Because being a slave requires total allegiance, doesn't it? And this is what Jesus even says. He says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. In Matthew 6, 24. So everyone has a master, and there's only two options. Now let's compare these masters. It's the master of sin. What is is he like? Well, sin is, is... really a self-serving master. You'll notice back in verse 12, it says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. There's a, a manipulation and a, and a lust that is tapped into. That the, the master of sin will leave us hungry. He'll leave us wanting for his own purposes. Sin feeds unrighteousness, which that lawlessness, it says in verse 19, leads to more lawlessness it's kind of this bottomless, short-term pit that is described. In verse twenty-one, he even says, "But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? You know, things that, that seemed normal to me early in my life. I look back now on it and I just cringe at. It. Sin is a terrible master." It consumes us for its own irrational plot to dethrone God. It promises and promises and it lies as much as it promises. It's a devastating master. But if you look at the master of Christ, and the contrast to the master of sin in this text, it's amazing. Christ frees us from the power of sin. He's a master who comes in and claims us and purchases us from another master. He gives us lasting hope by attaching us to him and his crucifixion and his resurrection. Christ is victorious over sin and death, over the master of sin. Jesus straddles over him and mocks him and taunts him. He's defeated him. In Colossians it says that God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. He's the one who's been victorious over that other master. And he's the one who serves and dies in our place. Christ leads us, it says, into righteousness and sanctification, which is a fancy word for growing or continually being changed by God. Notice that the slaves of God are happy to be slaves of God. Look at what it says in verse 17. But thanks be to God. Why would we give thanks to God? That you were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you've been committed. Why would we thank God? Because he's made us his slaves? Why would that be a good thing? But it says that we are obedient to this new master from the heart. Meaning, sincerely... We want to obey him. We want to love him. We want to serve him. He's that glorious. He's that good. He's that perfect. That we want to be slaves to him. See, the the problem with our view of authority in our culture is that we don't understand what perfect authority is like. We just have the crummy version, right? Right? At your workplace and in the government and all this stuff, not to disparage everyone in those positions, but you know what I mean. It's an imperfect deal. <laughs> but when Christ is our master and he dies in our place and he is glorious and he is full of power and majesty, every time we serve him, we're glad we did. You know? And that's a very different thing when you serve the master of sin and you're left wanting and you're left disappointed and you're left frustrated and you're mad. And the opposite is true when you serve the master of Christ. What a difference. Which master sounds better to us? Who do we serve? The self serving enemy of God who's trying to go down swinging by destroying God's people? with a self-sacrificing God who transforms you into His image, giving you eternal life and sharing His glory with you. See, what's interesting about this text is that becoming a Christian or following Christ is the same obligation as it is to be a slave of sin. See, Christ doesn't water down the commitment that we have to Him and kind of what it's like. And He still says, yeah, total allegiance, that's that's all I'm... Like, requiring everything. You have to follow me as Lord. It's not this compartmentalized, fractured, kind of slice-out-your-life kind of thing. It's not that way with him. And he does that because he knows that's going to serve his glory, which is his foremost purpose, and it's going to be best for us in the end. What a master. The great irony of this, Charles Hodge says, is when a man is the slave of sin, he commonly thinks himself free. When truly free, he feels himself most strongly bound to God. Isn't that interesting? Freedom isn't what we think. Now, let's think about the implications of this, of everyone having a master. This is where we'll spend a bulk of our time this morning, is, is on this idea of everyone having a master. If you're not a Christian here this morning, let the words of Paul ring in your heart and mind when he says, you are the slaves of the one whom you obey. So who is it that we obey? You are not as free as you think. You are not spiritually neutral. You are not um, free of allegiances. You have them. You worship someone. You worship something. So who is your master? Listen to the call of the master of Christ in Matthew 11 when he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Now, even after it was announced and proclaimed that slavery had ended in America, uh, in our history, many people remained slaves for years and years afterwards. You can, read, you can go online and read stories of all the slaves and, and how long it took for them to find out that freedom had already been granted. But a lot of slave owners tried to cut off and isolate their slaves and not allow them to go into public and another thing and extract every last hour that they could from that slavery. This is a bit what it's like and what we're saying this morning. That your cracked coworker is emailing you <laughs> and the gospel is saying there's actually freedom from that sense of bondage that you have. Freedom's already been accomplished for that. It's already been broken. And you don't have to be a slave to sin anymore. That's the good news of the gospel through the resurrection. Now, if you're a Christian here this morning, I'd encourage you to think about, do we think about our relationship to Christ as that of a slave and master? That might just kind of rub us the wrong way. And there's certainly more to our relationship with God than that, but fundamentally, He is our Lord. And so let me ask, are you a glad slave? Do you remember life before Charles Hodge says, To say to the slave who has not been freed, Do not behave as a slave, is to mock his enslavement. But to say the same to the slave who has been set free is the necessary appeal to put into effect the privilege and rights of his liberation. To remind us, Christians, fellows, brothers and sisters, that you are indeed free. You're free to serve. You're free to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the slaves who was emancipated describes uh, this in Americans' uh, history. His name is Felix Haywood. And I think it's an apt description of what it's like uh, to be freed from that. He says, The end of the war has has come just like that, like you snap your fingers. How did you know the end of the war had come, asked the interviewer. "How How did we know it? Hallelujah broke out. He says, soldiers all of a sudden were everywhere coming and bunches and crossing and walking and riding and everyone was a singing we was all walking on golden clouds hallelujah union forever hurrah boys hurrah although i may be a poor shouting the battle cry of freedom everybody went wild we all felt like heroes and nobody had made us that way but ourselves we was free just like that we was free It didn't seem to make the whites mad either. They went right on giving us food just the same. Nobody took our homes away, but right off colored folks started on the move. They seemed to want to get closer to freedom as they know what it was, like it was a place or a city. Brothers and sisters, if you're in Christ this morning, you are free of the slavery of sin. And you have the privilege of being a slave of Jesus Christ. And owned by him. Our last point this morning says every master has a wage. Every master has a wage. You know, these two masters, as we described them, have very different destinies. And this will go quickly because it's very, very simple. The master of sin, it says, ends in death. And it's not just talking about physical death, it's talking about separation from God. And it says that three different times. In our text. The wages of sin. Is death. This is what God told Adam and Eve. From the very beginning. That the cost of sin is death. And separation from God. That that's the natural result. That's the natural outcome. Of following the pattern of this world. Of just staying at your desk. And working away for the shell company. But. But. In verse 23, it says that, again, for the wages of sin is death, but then it explains the wages of Christ as master. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The God we've offended through our own stubborn independence is the God who is generous enough to give a gift And not only give a gift, but give the gift of eternal life. That he has planned and that he has executed and he has accomplished. That's the end result of following the master of Jesus. Eternal life. This seems so backwards. When you step back and you just think, why would I ever serve a different master? That's so dumb. (laughs) to serve the master of sin and to end up being separated from God, to end up being left wanting with serving the master of Christ who in his generosity, this again was the one we've offended, gives us the free gift of eternal life. That's the wages. Now, What is this saying? It's why in verse 17 he says, but thanks be to God because of this this resurrection that has happened in Christ means that we can switch masters. We can switch. We can change. In verse 17 and 22 it talks about having been uh, set free or having been saved. And those are passive verbs because God... arranges for this transfer, this switch to happen that's possible. See, you realize you can't make yourself right with God, but but then you come to realize that God can make you right with Him. God can do it, even though you can't. And the pattern in the Bible is that He rescues you and then you grow. He saves you and then you change. Not, you change and then He looks at you and goes, well... You're like a B minus, so you're just above average and I'll go with you. That's not the way this works. The order is always God and then us. God initiates. God gives you eyes to see. God shows you that Jesus is beautiful and glorious and that he's the Lord of all. But the point is, it's possible to switch masters. This is what's amazing, and you think, if, if this were like an infomercial, you'd just turn it off, and you're like, there's no way. That is bogus. That's just a line that someone's feeding me, right? There's no way a switch like that is going to be offered by the one who I've offended. That's not going to work. But that's, that's what Jesus is saying. This switch is possible, and then God will increasingly and finally change you into the image of his resurrected Son, It's very simple, but it's staggering. So, as we think about this and the implications of that, let me just ask you a simple question. I love what Al Mohler says that when he's on planes, he occasionally will turn to the person next to him and ask two questions. What are you living for? And how is that going? What are you living for? And how is that going? And those are fair questions. And I would just commend those to you. What are you living for? And how is that going? How is your current master treating you? For those of you who don't know Christ, I suspect there may be some complaints you'd want to file with your current master. It doesn't mean that if you're a Christian that everything will always make sense to you. It's not that way. I'll just kind of tell you right now in advance. But you do know the character of your master. And you've seen what he's like and what what he's passionate for and what what he's about. And even when you're confused and you think that he's mistreating you, you find that he's loving you. So what are you living for? And how is that working for you? As a closing illustration, I'm going to share with you a story, and I might have shared it. I don't know. We've been here long enough that our our illustrations are starting to overlap. So we're in like Pastor Danger Zone, right? No, Um, But uh, I think it's just an image that is so helpful to me and has been about a man named Hiro Onoda. On September 2nd, 1945, is when uh, the Japanese formally surrendered aboard the U.S. naval boat uh, Missouri, not officially ending World War II. And although the war was over, um, and it took it took a lot of time to alert the world, especially the soldiers who were stationed on islands. And there was four Japanese soldiers, one of which was named Hiro Onoda who had been stationed on an island in the Philippines. And so after the war ended, they actually flew over the island and dropped these leaflets in October of 1945, explaining that the war was indeed over. But these men didn't come out. They didn't relent. As you know, the the Japanese have a very firm commitment to uh, fighting to the end. And so uh, in 1946... A second attempt was made and a leaflet was dropped over the island explaining from the general who they served under that the war was over and they continued to fight. They thought it was a farce, someone making it up. In 1952, seven years after, they dropped family pictures explaining the same thing with their family actually having written to them. They thought it was all a conspiracy and they were to continue fighting. In the meantime, there were all these skirmishes with local fishermen and police and all these things where actually three of the four men died fighting a war that was already over. And Hiro Unada was the remaining one. And in 1974, 29 years later, a college dropout made it his mission to find Lieutenant Onoda. He said he was going to look for uh, the wild panda, the abominable snowman, or Onoda. And so he decided to look for Onoda. <laughs> Quite a guy. You have to look it up on YouTube. It's a fascinating story. So he flew back to Japan and he found, uh, this, this college dropout found uh, Onoda's commanding officer from 29 years before and got him to go with him to the island to find Lieutenant Onoda. And Lieutenant Onoda emerged from the jungle surrendering 29 years after the war was over in full uniform with his original rifle in operating condition and 500 rounds of ammo and several hand grenades. A.K.A. he could have gone a lot longer, basically, it sounds like. And at that point, Lieutenant Onoda had spent more of his life fighting a war that didn't even exist because he didn't believe that peace terms had been reached. He could have been spared three decades of time just by believing the good news that the war was over. The reason why that story moves me is because... I. I see that story being replayed out in the lives of people all around me who don't know that Jesus Christ, that God in the flesh has come and lived a life that you and I never could have done and we constantly fail at. And he died in a way so as to set up an exchange with God, to exhaust and to, to, to drain the payment for sin. And then he was vindicated and that exchange was confirmed when he was raised three days later and ascended to heaven. And there will be a day that he returns and there are scads of people who are continuing to fight a hopeless war that has already been won. That's the good news of this morning. That's the leaflet that's dropping out of the sky to you if you don't know Christ. Christ is victorious. The resurrection shows us that. And now, because of that resurrection, we can walk in newness of life and that life will never, ever end. If you're not a Christian here this morning and want to talk more about that, please do so. Please talk to the person who invited you. Talk to any of us. Talk to me. We would love to explain more about how these peace terms have have come to be. And we know do will be creeping out of that jungle slowly, right? We know that it sounds too good to be true. But it's true. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have secured victory. You've done it. You have broken the back of sin. And everything from this day or from that day forward is mop-up and is clean-up and um, is, is finishing off what you've already completed and, and assured is going to happen. We thank you, Father, that, we, that your grace doesn't cause us or cause us just a, a chase after a false freedom. But actually, this gospel, this good news, it endears us to Jesus. We're so thankful that, that you make it possible for us to be attached to him, to his crucifixion and to his resurrection, and, and God, we pray that you'd help us to draw near, that in our, in our lives we would be people whose, whose lives correspond to this good news and this reality we've been looking at in Romans 6 for the past few weeks. God, as, as good Americans, it's hard to even say it, but we're thankful to be slaves to you. We're thankful for your loving authority and for your salvation and for the way that you um, rescue and, and, and confront us and love us and serve and, and do what you do to accomplish your glory and our good at the same time. God, we don't know how you do that, but we know that you do. So give us faith. Give us, give us hope in the news that we are now slaves of righteousness, And that the fruit that we get as a result of being a slave of righteousness is sanctification and is eternal life. And God, I pray for those who are here who may not know you yet, who are scared, who want to just keep plowing away at serving the shell company. God, I pray you disrupt that. I pray you break through and give them eyes of faith to see the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ on display. Help us to celebrate today. We want to party like nothing else today. Today is victory day. Today is your day. Today is a day to, to shout out from the rooftops that everything is is not as it appears. So help us to do that with our families and our neighborhoods.